The reading for today's sermon comes from the book of Acts, chapter 3, beginning at verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's, astounded. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for the restoring of all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful and gracious God, we come to you now needy and helpless, seeking your illumination. By the same Spirit who inspired these words, please speak once again. Breathe upon us new life. Shine upon us fresh light that our lives may be conformed more to that of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please do be seated. And let me say a, a warm welcome to you all, particularly those family and friends of the Demore and Barnes household. I've had a chance to say hi to some of you already. It's great to have you with us. We're so glad you could make it, and we hope that you and uh, other visitors here may take the opportunity to get to know us a little bit and uh, to congratulate those families on the baptisms and their new membership here at the reception after the service. Today I would like to speak especially to children and younger people Young people raised in Christian homes with Christian families, I guess that what I have to say will be relevant, I hope it will be relevant to others, but I have in mind today particularly uh, people under the age of, say, 25 years old, so children, teenagers, young adults, 
who have had the blessings of Christian homes, a Christian upbringing, Christian nurture, who'd been taken to church by flawed but faithful parents for many years. And the central message I want to highlight for you is that you are tremendously blessed because there is a whole bunch of stuff in this part of the scriptures which should be blindingly obvious to you. So obvious that you probably take it for granted, but you shouldn't take it for granted. I want to remind you of some things which you have been taught since you were bounced on your mother's knee and which you must never forget and which because of the privileged position you have, you have a particular responsibility to hear and take seriously. From those to whom much is given, much is required, Jesus said, and you have been given much, very much. It's peculiarly providential, I guess, that we've got six new young people, four newly baptized people in the congregation this morning. It's not just to you that I'm speaking, but perhaps this will be helpful to you particularly. You have been blessed because there are things that are obvious to you, or should be obvious to you. The grace and power of the Lord Jesus Christ should be obvious to you. The truth and the wisdom of the scriptures should be obvious to you. The fact that you need to repent of your sins should be obvious to you. The cost of not doing so, the cost of ignoring the word of God should be obvious to you. And the greatness of the promises into which you have been welcomed. Just think of that passage we, we read from Genesis 17, again, a wonderful providence, where God to be prom- promises not to be God only to Abraham, but to his offspring forever, and to give to them the land of all their sojournings, all the land of Canaan, and to be their God, Genesis 17. The greatness of the promises of God should be absolutely obvious to you. You've experienced all this stuff for as long as you can remember. And therefore, you have absolutely no excuses. Not being funny, right? But you don't know how confused the world is, probably, because for much of your life, or most of, or maybe all your life, all you've had is the luminous clarity of mum and dad just teaching you the basics, teaching you the right path. And so there are some things which it's just been part of how you've been raised. And those are wonderful things. And so you've got no excuses, young man. Yeah? You've got no excuses, young lady. No excuses. I thought of getting everybody under the age of 15 or so to put their hands up, but I don't want to embarrass you. Okay? This is, it's not the aim of the sermon to embarrass you. The aim of the sermon is to remind you how kind God has been to you and to press on your little baby hearts and your not-so-little hearts, some of you teenagers and young adults, and frankly, some of you actual adult adults as well, that, yeah, from those to whom much has been given, much is, literally, much is demanded, Jesus says. No excuses. This message arises peculiarly clearly from today's passage. I'm just going to remind you of the context. We've been working through the book of Acts on and off for a few weeks. We're in the early days of the church after the the Feast of Pentecost. And Peter and John, in chapter 3, verse 1, have gone up to the temple to pray, as they did customarily. And they bumped into this man who's standing outside one of the gates, and uh, he was healed, verse 8. Leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him 
They saw him walking and leaping and praising God. And they're like, what on earth is this? They recognized him as the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple, saying, please, please give me some money. And now he's been given something you can never have dreamed of he'd ever received. And they're filled with wonder and amazement at what's happened to him. And in verse 11, there he is, clinging to Peter and John. And all the people are like, have you heard what's happened? That, that, that guy? The guy's been sitting around for 40 years, keeps asking us for money. He's dancing. Can you see him? And they're like, what? And they're all rushing into the temple area just outside the portico of Solomon, so-called. And Peter preaches a sermon, his second sermon in two chapters. Preachers got to preach, right? And he preaches a sermon from which arise some very important lessons for young people. And the key to understand the connection here is to realize who he's preaching to. And you've got your Bibles, just look with me. Who's he preaching to? He is preaching, verse, 11, verse 12, to men of Israel. Ordinary Israelite people, men and women as well, men of Israel. Verse 17, he calls them brothers. Verse 25, very interestingly, he calls them sons of the prophet and of the covenant. Sons of the covenant. In other words, they're people, just think for a second, ordinary Israelite men and women who have been born and raised within the covenant family of the people of God. The ones about whom Genesis 17, 8 is talking about. I will be God to you and to your offspring after you. These are the offspring, the ones who've been raised in these wonderful Christian homes. Never known a day when they didn't love Jesus, never known a Sunday when they weren't in church. Covenant people, interestingly distinguished from chapter 4, verse 1, the leaders rock up, and the leaders aren't so enthusiastic, but these are the ordinary men and women, members of the old covenant church, the old covenant people of Israel. And what happens is throughout this sermon, Peter highlights their tremendous privilege as the old covenant people of God. And I want to show you some ways in which he does that. There's a whole bunch of things which should have been obvious to them because they've all been raised within this community. Brothers, Israelites. Should be obvious that the Messiah is going to come, guys. Should be obvious that you should repent when he gets here. Should be obvious that you've got to listen to the word of God and that there's going to be hell to pay, literally, if you don't. It has to be obvious to you. What's wrong with you? It's not us that raised, that let this man walk. It's Jesus who's been glorified by his Father. That should be obvious to you guys. That's what Peter says throughout this sermon. And so you can see the parallel. They're in a kind of situ similar situation to you, young people. They've been raised, faithful, going to church every week, going to temple every Saturday, going to church every Sunday. And Peter says, listen, this is just, come on. You've got five seconds to get in line here because you've got no excuses. And there's five things that should be obvious to them. There are five things, I've, uh, Mrs. Loki kindly printed them on the we had to stop the presses to get these printed on the order of worship this week. Um, if you look at the insert, they're, they're listed there. And now, just before we jump into that, briefly, 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 I'm conscious that there are lots and lots of theological details that some of you adults will have spotted that I'm going to be skating over because I want to talk particularly to the young people. There's this big biblical theological question about what it means that the gospel is preached to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. It's anticipated in chapter 1, verse 8. It's mentioned in verse 26, isn't it? God sent Jesus to you first. 
And that makes sense of all the emphasis on Israel's history and all the testimony of the prophets and the promises to Abraham. And then there's the related question about what role these Jewish disciples of the Lord had in the death of Jesus, the Lord, who the Lord of Israel had sent into the world. And it's interesting that it is the people here. It's not just the leaders. But of course, you know from the Gospels that the leaders kind of stirred up the crowd, but the crowd was a little bit too willing to be stirred up. So what's going on there? All those questions. Significance of the the location, it's in the temple. All this emphasis on Solomon's uh, colonnade, which is particularly important because there's a bunch of sacrificial allusions here as well. When it says perfect health in verse 16, referring to this man who was lame and has now been healed, um, that language is used elsewhere to talk about an offering that's perfect, ready for sacrifice which also is really striking because the quote that you will recognize from Leviticus 18 about Moses saying there's going to be a prophet like me is merged with another quotation from Leviticus 23 all about the Day of Atonement. And if you don't participate in the Day of Atonement ritual, you're going to be cut off from the people. And that's a sacrifice thing going on there. What does it mean on earth? Well, that's going on where it says, I know you acted in ignorance. Well, it doesn't mean that it wasn't their fault. The ignorance is culpable ignorance, but it's still confusing. Maybe it's a bit of Numbers 15 sins of inadvertence, sinning with a high hand. Maybe it's that the nation of Israel has become like the ignorant Gentile nations of the world. Yeah, complicated. And what are the times of refreshing? Verse 20. And what are literally uh, the times for the restoration of all things? Verse 21. So there's a whole bunch of complexity there. You have to go and work all that out on your own. If you want, you can go listen to those two and a half minutes of that sermon this afternoon, adults, in your own time, and let me know if you find answers to any of those questions. I'd be absolutely fascinated to hear. But I'm going to talk to the children. I have five things to say to you. Five things that should have been obvious to the people that Peter's speaking to and which should be obvious to you. Number one, the power of Jesus should be obvious to you. Look at verse uh, 11 with me. We're going to pick up this passage. While he, that lame man, clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together into the portico called Solomon's Portico, astounded. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. And you see what's happening. All these people think that Peter and John have healed somebody. Wow, Peter and John are amazing. They've healed this man who's been lying here for four decades. And Peter said, men of Israel, why are you looking at us? Why do you stare at us? as though by our own piety or power we had made this man walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, your God, the God of your fathers, the God that you've been brought up believing in, has glorified his servant Jesus. It should be obvious to you that it's not Peter and John. Duh. Wake up and smell the coffee. It should be obvious to you that it's Jesus who has done this. What are you, Israelites? Not, not expecting the Messiah, about which the whole of your scriptures are talking about, it should be obvious to you. And it's interesting, I, I, so, sometimes if I talk about um, the privilege of being a Christian young person, there's a little bit of shuffling in the seats with discomfort from mum and dad. Because they know, mum and dad know, that the teenagers know that mum and dad aren't perfect. So they're like, I hope Pastor Jeffrey doesn't big this up too much because it's kind of, you know, our kids are going to think they're the only ones who don't have perfect parents. Um, Kids, like, like teenagers, you're not kids, are you? Young people, I know your parents aren't perfect, which is precisely the point. 
it ought to be obvious to you that anything good that happens in your family is not because mum's perfect. Anything good that happens in your family is not because dad is so amazing. It's because Jesus is so kind. If you, if you see both the blessings that God has showered upon your family and also the, the angry moments of your dad or the despairing moments of your mother, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is glorifying Jesus, and it should be obvious that it's not about your parents. It's about him. It's striking to me the, the people that Peter is talking to. It's like, why... Why would they be slow to acknowledge Jesus? Well, Peter kind of lays it out, doesn't he? Look at verse 13 again, I'll show you. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you killed. Yeah, that Jesus. The one whom you delivered over in the presence of Pilate. When he decided to release him, you were in the crowd that said, crucify him. You denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you instead. And I'll tell you why you did that, because the murderer wasn't asking for you to confess and repent of your sins. There's something in us, isn't there, that resists attributing kindness to Jesus, because Jesus has a way of grabbing you by the scruff of the neck and saying, right now, let's be serious, shall we? Because you should know that Jesus doesn't, you know, come to sort of unicorn and rainbows you know, Jesus is a uh, fearsome king. If I attribute this miracle to Jesus, then I'll be forced to admit that I've not always honoured Jesus as I should. Yes, you will. But you still have no excuse. No more than these guys did. Just look again. You killed the author of life. Oh, the irony. <laughs> Taking the life away of the one who brings life. You've got it all completely backwards. Whom God raised from the dead. See, so you're opposing God as well. And of this, we're witnesses. It's his name. By faith in his name, the Greek, if some of you teenagers are studying Greek, look at verse 16 in, when you get home. It's a complete pickle. It's a complete mess. The grammar is really awkward. And the reason is because it's Peter's really trying to emphasize it's, it's, a, it's a, about Jesus, it's about faith in Jesus that this man whom you see and know has been given this perfect health. He's been made ready to be the sacrificial offering whom you need. Jesus has been made ready to be that. And he, this man has been made ready to offer his life as a sacrifice to Jesus. And that's what you're being made ready for, for as well. There's, there's no, you see, your friends who you know at baseball club, right, maybe their parents haven't told them as much about Jesus, but your mum and dad have told you, correct? No excuses. First thing. Second, the truth of the Old Testament prophecies should be obvious to you. That's the second thing. The power of Jesus, number one, the truth of the Old Testament scriptures, and especially the prophecies contained in them, should be obvious to you. Now, look at verse 17, I'll show you. And now, brothers, I think that's really interesting. Peter calls these men brothers, even though they crucified the Messiah and they don't believe in Jesus yet, because they're part of the same old covenant community, and that old covenant community is still sort of carrying on until the temple is destroyed in a few decades' time, as in 70 AD. Brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. You see? 
I know your Bible classes weren't perfect. I know that your mum and dad aren't perfect either. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Like, look, however, however terrible your parents are, let's just, just you and me talk for a second, okay? 15-year-olds and 16-year-olds especially, because you've just discovered that your parents are awful, haven't you? <laughs> really awful. Uh, let me just, I've got some news for you, they're not. It's, you've changed, not them. But however bad, however much you feel let down, and you do sometimes feel let down, don't you, when you're 15 or 16 years old and everything and everybody is against you? You couldn't miss this. You'd have to have a pretty bad Bible teacher to miss the bit about Jesus being crucified. <laughs> come on. However, I know that you acted sort of in ignorance and your teachers were ignorant too, but come on. Don't pretend not to know that Jesus needed to come and die for your sins. Don't pretend. You, you know. And it's interesting, verse 18, it points not just to you should have known that Jesus would need to come and die for your sins, right? It also points to the idea of a, of a biblical worldview should have been obvious to you. The whole shape of history, the fact that um, the whole of human life is for the purpose of glorifying God, that's just part of how the scriptures speak. And you don't even realize what it's like not to think this, because your parents have taught you, um, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to know God and fully to enjoy him forever, to worship God and fully to enjoy him forever. Sorry, I'm getting my Westminster wrong. That's not very good, is it? Come on, Jeffers, you can do better. But, and, and it's really interesting. When you get older, and, and some of you young-ish people in your 20s, you have now started to spot this. Have you spotted how confused the world is? Yeah? How, you, and you start, you start, you start reading um, political news, and then you're like, oh my word. How confused are the rulers of the nations of the world. And you hear people talking about work and people talking about family life and Lord preserve us, people talking about marriage and people talking about relationships and you realize how totally confused the world is. I can still remember the day that I stopped listening to BBC News because it was just so aggravating. I used to listen to the radio every morning, but it just put me in a bad mood the whole time. And the reason it's putting me in a bad mood is because, okay, somewhat later in life than some of you children, gradually a biblical worldview is starting to take shape in my thick head. And when that takes shape in your thick head, you realize, man, the world is a complete mess, isn't it? Now, I just want to flip that around for a second. That's really what the world looks like to most of the world. It's so confusing. And people make such stupid decisions all the time. And you don't have to deal with that because of your parents. Because of this or whichever church you've been in for however many years you've been alive that has cut through the noise of confusion and stupidity and given you truth and wisdom and clarity. And it seems obvious to you, right, that men are men and women are women and they ought to get married and have babies and work hard and then die. Or worship God as well. You know, that's obvious, correct? Yes. Well, it's not obvious to everybody else. It's obvious to you, so you've got no excuses, you see. There's no excuse for you not to work as hard as you possibly can at school. There's no excuse for you not to seek to become the most godly young lady or the most hard-working and faithful man of integrity that you can possibly be 
and find somebody of the opposite sex to marry and have children and to raise them in the same kind of, or preferably better, than your parents did you. No excuses. I won't, I'm not having it. Oh yeah, but it's a really, I've got too many siblings at home, I can't do my homework. Find a way of doing your homework. It's too noisy. Earplugs, I don't know. You've got no excuses. And it's because your parents have been kind. They've given you the, what we call sometimes a biblical worldview. You know, have you heard that phrase, some of you young people? A biblical view of the world seems intuitively obvious to you to the point where CNN is now really, really aggravating. <laughs> yeah, well, thank God for the clarity that your parents have brought. You've got a lot of thanking your parents to do, by the way, this afternoon. Okay, number two. Number three. Getting a bit serious now, okay? Well, it was serious before, but this is now proper serious. The need for repentance is the next thing that Peter says to his, the people who are hearing. The need for repentance should be obvious to you. Sadly, this is not obvious to some adults. What repent means is change of mind, change of direction of your life. Repent means I... I realize that this is wrong and it's my fault and it's bad. I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm going to turn, I'm going to strive to live in a different way. It's um, changing your attitude on the inside and it's actually changing your life on the outside as well. You see that in verse 19, look. It's the very next thing. What God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that the Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled, verse 19, repent therefore. But you've got to leave all that bad stuff behind. All the things that you're secretly hoping that your parents don't find out about, most of which they already know. You need to leave that behind. You need to pray for a new heart and a new spirit, a new set of desires and the capacity to live in a different way. That's what repentance means. Verse 19, repent therefore and turn again. Turn, repent, same kind of idea. That your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. And footnote, I don't know why it talks about sending the Christ here when he's already been sent. I, eschatology something complicated. Adults, try and figure it out this afternoon and let me know. Okay. But look, verse 19. The, the thing that should be obvious to you here is that the way we deal with sin is by recognizing we've done it, saying sorry, and you, then you stop. And you seek the forgiveness that Jesus gives, and you strive by his grace to live in a new way. That's what that's how we deal with sin. It should be obvious to you. And it should have been obvious because you've, you've seen your parents do it. Parents, and I know I've encouraged you to do this in the past. I want to encourage you again. It's, it's a good thing to apologize to your children. Not, not, don't apologize all the time when you've not done anything. Okay, that's not what I mean. But when you've actually done something that you shouldn't have done, if you did lose your temper and you shouldn't have done, it's good to acknowledge that and confess that to them because you're actually teaching them how we deal with sin. Because let me tell you, how we deal with sin is a source of great confusion in the big dark world out there. The way that the world deals with sin is in all kinds of wrong ways. Ignoring it, maybe it'll just go away, maybe I'll forget. Or minimizing it. Maybe it doesn't really matter. Maybe it's not so bad. 
Or maybe it's not my fault, because like I'm a victim of my circumstances. Oh my word, it's like so infuriating. Who'd be a pastor, eh? It's, um, but you've all seen it. Maybe you've all seen it, older people have seen it, where somebody will blame everything apart from themselves for what they've done. Let me tell you, um, to the degree that you're saying something isn't your fault, you're saying, I don't want forgiveness for that. Now, it is important to clarify, because sometimes you are a victim, like a 100% victim, and so you've got no sin to confess, so that's right. Sometimes you are genuinely victimized by your circumstances, by something that happens to you, by somebody else. But here's the problem. Sometimes we, we have played a part, perhaps a massive part in something, and there's been a little bit of somebody else kind of pushed me into it or tempted me into it. It's like 5% somebody else or 5% my circumstances and 95% me. You've done percentages, right? You know what, five, yeah, good, right? And the problem is, what we do then is just say, well, it's all my circumstances. We focus on the 5% and not on the 95%. And what you're basically saying is, Lord, please don't forgive me for that 95%. You can be forgiven for anything you confess to the Lord and seek forgiveness for. You will be forgiven for nothing of which you're a victim because there's nothing to forgive. Or you're lying and saying there's nothing to forgive when in fact there is, and you shouldn't expect forgiveness there either. And there are lots of adults who don't understand that. Lots of adults actually don't understand the grace of God. Lots of adults don't understand that, like, if it was a thousand times worse than it really was, there's still forgiveness available. But there's no forgiveness for somebody who doesn't think they've sinned, because what, you know... If you have to come to me afterwards and tell me where you've buried the body, there's still forgiveness. But there's no forgiveness if it's just victimhood. And it's one of the most pitiful things to watch. Somebody ruining themselves because they just won't front up to what they have done. Because they're blaming everything apart from what they have done. No excuse for you. Because every week you come here and you watch your parents get on their knees to confess not their victimhood but their sins. And some of you have been coming to this church for longer than even Pastor Neil has been the pastor here, which is a very long time. And you've been doing that every week. You've been learning to confess your sins, so no excuses. No excuses. Number four. Number four and five I'll do quickly, okay? The cost of not listening should be obvious to you. Verse 22 Peter recounts the words of Moses, who said, quote, this is from Deuteronomy 18, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers, and you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And then he merges it a bit with Leviticus 23, mentioned this earlier, and says, it shall be that every soul who doesn't listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. What he's saying is, look, you Israelites, you men of Israel, you have known from your mother's knee that God was going to send a prophet to speak. In fact, he sent prophets before. All the prophets, verse 24. God speaks. God has sent prophets time and time and time again. And he says, if you don't listen to the prophet, you're in a big pile of doo-doo, trouble. You've got to listen to the prophets. 
Now, Jesus is the great prophet who's come in fulfillment of Moses' prophecy. You've got to listen to him. And that should be obvious to you, Israelites. And it should definitely be obvious to you, young people. Is, is, that, is that easy enough? Can I move on? Because <laughs> you need to listen to what Jesus commands you to do. It's not good to live in the world that God has made and not follow the maker's instructions. You know this because it's what your dad tries to do sometimes, but on a much smaller scale when he goes to Ikea to buy a chest of drawers and then thinks, I don't need the instructions, I can do this. <laughs> and you, you watch your mum sitting there going, oh my goodness, here we go again. And before long you've got a, a kind of wonky chest of drawers and half a dozen bits left over. That, what are these for? Uh, no, they didn't just put them in there just in case. They were needed to make the thing work. See, somebody who tries to make it work without following the maker's instructions end up in a terrible pickle. You know that. Let's not make that mistake. I don't want teenagers with their lives like a busted Ikea chest of drawers for Pastor Shaw to fix. It would be too difficult. <laughs> Sorry, brother. Finally, number five. The greatness of God's promises should be obvious to you. Verse 25, look with me. You are all, this is like he's reaching his conclusion. It's like, I can't believe I'm still having to talk to you Israelites. But here we go, look, you're all sons of the prophets and sons of the covenant that God made with our fathers. And what did he say to Abraham? He said to Abraham, that in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. You're part of a community of people that is inheriting the earth. Every nation on earth is being blessed through the ministry of the Lord God of Israel, fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're part of that community. You've known this ever since the first time you read Genesis, which was pretty early in your case, because your parents have taught you the scriptures. You know that it is a wonderful thing to be a part of the family of God. You know that it is a wonderful thing to have your sins forgiven. You know that it's a wonderful thing to be part of this international community of people who have been welcomed by the living God. And so you have no excuses at all. What I pray for is that in 20 or 30 years' time, you young people who I've been talking to today, you may not remember this sermon. Maybe you will, I don't know. But what you will be is what your parents pray that you will be spiritual giants compared to them. They don't want you to be just like them. They want you, by the grace of God, to surpass them in wisdom, in diligence, in holiness and purity. They don't want you to make all the mistakes they've made. And they have been giving themselves to you for years to help you. To, so you can stand on their shoulders. Not literally, don't stand on your dad's shoulders, you're a bit big. That's what I pray. Because that's what this world needs needs humble giants in the faith. May the Lord bless us with them through you. Let's pray together. Merciful and gracious Father, we thank you for all these things of which your word speaks and particularly for the greatness of your promises fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ. May these young people grow into giants before whom we simply crouch and praise you for your goodness. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.